with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Continuing our sermon series, Jesus is Better, on the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, for sure. So we call him the author or the writer, maybe the apostle. But he says this, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, give us insight into what these words mean. What you had for the original readers and audience of Hebrews, but also for us today. Lord, thank you for the cumulative teaching and preaching that we've done from Hebrews, that we have, those that have been here, a foundation and a running start into understanding what the heavenly Jerusalem and Mount Zion holds for us. So open our hearts, our ears to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name. Am I loud enough? You guys hear me pretty well in the back? Okay, good. We got one. Turn up a little bit. Feeling quiet. Don't want to shout. In the 1990s, there was a fierce rivalry in college football. Three schools down in Florida. May have heard of them. Florida State, University of Florida, University of Miami. We got some... I know we have some Florida fans here. 
They were very successful. They all usually ranked in the top 25 every year. They competed for national championships. And when they would play each other, it was a big deal. Now, my family lived in Florida at the time, but I went to college in Texas, so I didn't see many of the games. But there was one chance I got to go to one of the rivalry games. My little brother Josh went to Florida State, so he got us tickets uh, to go to one of the Florida State-Florida games on a weekend that I would be there. And by got us tickets, I mean he had a verbal offer of tickets. And so the morning of the game, we headed towards the stadium. We were supposed to meet the guy who had them at the fountain outside the stadium. So we were there, plenty of time, waiting. We waited, no cell phones, so the game started. All we could do was wait until Josh suddenly remembered maybe he meant the other fountain on campus. And so I had the great privilege of watching that rivalry game in his apartment. That's a fun story I like to remind him of. Another story is I had a friend in high school who was sort of the first one to get his license and he had his own truck and he, uh, he was pretty excited one time because not only was he driving and uh, he was going to drive himself to the airport, but he was flying by himself, 16, 17 years old, very grown up. This was like his first time. And so he, uh, the morning that he was supposed to fly, he gave himself plenty of time, headed to the airport, checked in, and promptly missed his flight because he forgot that Houston, Texas, where we went to high school, has two airports, two major airports, Intercontinental and Hobby, and he had just gone to the one that he was used to going to. You may have heard the key to real estate. There's three key factors, location, location, and location, right? And in a lot of life situations, not only do you have to have the right time, you have to have the right place. I'm sure you have stories like mine where you showed up in the wrong place and you missed out on something important. Well, today's passage reminds us that we need to be in the right place. We need to choose correctly, head to the right place when it's time. But it's not fountains or airports we're talking about here. We're talking about mountains. There are two mountains that are symbols of important spiritual things in the scriptures. If we stay at one mountain, we will miss out on the blessings of the new covenant and be in danger of being shaken and removed. We need to find and be at the other mountain. The first mountain, even though it's not really named in the text, we know it's Mount Sinai. And verses 18 and 21 Show us the picture of what Mount Sinai is. It represents the law and the terror of God's judgment. Let's read those verses again. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, 
I tremble with fear. Now, if you don't remember, and uh, Exodus, this is a scene from Exodus chapters 19 and 20. And if you don't remember, next year, we're going to be, next school year, we're going to be preaching through Exodus. We're going to get this again. But it's the account of a story where the Lord had Moses bring all of the people of Israel before him in front of Mount Sinai. And essentially, he wanted them gathered in front of him, even though he was only really going to interact with Moses. He calls Moses to the top of the mountain and there gives him the Ten Commandments and the law. And the mountain is wrapped in smoke. And it, the mountain actually shook. It trembled. And there was thunder and sounds like a trumpet. And the Lord told Moses in a couple different ways, don't let the people come near. Don't let them touch the mountain for their own safety. They will die. Even an animal would die if he came too close. In fact, the people have them washed and consecrated even to just stand at the foot of the mountain. And the Israelites are fine with that. They do not want to get close. In fact, they plead with Moses to ask God not to speak to them again because they're sure that they will die if he does. They realize the presence of God without a mediator is a terrifying thing. And that's the scene that verses 18 through 21 recalls. And it's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to remember about the Old Covenant. It had its place in time, and it taught the people to fear the Lord, to obey Him, to worship Him properly. But it was all characterized by distance from God and the healthy fear that could easily turn to terror of who God is and what he would do when the people failed. So Mount Sinai is a place of fear. Only Moses was allowed to approach it, and he, even he is afraid. The law of God was not a life-giving, joyful thing. It was to be obeyed. But the consequences of disobedience were to be feared. The author explains this as a reminder to the readers that it doesn't have to be where we are. We're no longer standing before Mount Sinai. We're no longer living under the law. No longer living in fear. They and we have come to a completely different mountain. It's an inviting mountain. We are to come boldly, to draw near. To use phrases from earlier in Hebrews. We are given access. God's presence is no longer terrifying for those who stand light, rightly before Him. And that place is Mount Zion, where we see a picture of heaven and the celebration of God's grace. Look at verses 22 and 23 with me. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, King David, you can read back in Samuel, had originally captured the stronghold on Mount Zion and then captured the nearby city of Jerusalem and made it his capital city. So Mount Zion and Jerusalem are not the same thing, but they're often used interchangeably. And for the last 3,000 years, those have been the central important locations for the Jewish faith. The earthly Zion was the meeting point for the tribes of the old Israel. So now the heavenly Zion is the meeting point for the new Israel. In the New Testament, Zion comes to symbolize heaven. The new heavens, the new earth, the city of the living God. Look at Revelations 14, 1 through 3. I've got it in your outline there. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. So just as Mount Sinai symbolized the law, so Mount Zion in this passage symbolizes grace salvation, and the new covenant of Christ. Now, if you look closely, verse 22, that phrase, festal gathering, that sticks out a bit to me. Sounds like an awful, awful lot like a dignified way of saying, there's a party going on. And the party goers are the Lord himself. God, Jesus, and the angels are there rejoicing. And the redeemed church has come. Some people think the whole thing is, is describing the church, but there's an aspect that it's, it's heaven. The redeemed church is called the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. It's an interesting phrase. We don't see that a lot. The firstborn that mean you have to be the oldest in your family to go to heaven? No. The phrase the firstborn is describing someone who gets the inheritance. Do you remember Jesus is the firstborn from the dead in Colossians 1? And all who are redeemed in him become the firstborn. And the firstborn in that culture... Remember their privilege? They got the lion's share of the inheritance. And so we, Christians, every Christian, is going to inherit every spiritual blessing, showered with the blessings through God. Man, will God run out if everyone gets big inheritance? No. We all get it. It's that beautiful picture. 
So I don't know about you, but when the author of Hebrews presents Old Covenant Judaism very starkly as being like standing before a terrifying sight, afraid of the Lord's judgment. And then he immediately contrasts New Covenant Christianity as being the ticket to a party. It doesn't take a sanctified, spiritually mature person to say, I'll take the party. Now, I got in trouble one time speaking at a different church, some youth, um, because I was talking about sort of application of being salt and light in the world, and, and if you're at a party, you're still going as, as representing Jesus. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I do know somebody in that audience only heard, we should go party, which she then texted to the pastor who got very upset. Lesson learned. Careful qualification. But I'm going to urge you today, choose the party. Choose the party going on in heaven. When it comes to the afterlife, to eternity, we should be selfish. We should be motivated by rewards and glory and all that God has promised us. That's okay. It's a beautiful picture of heaven. Listen, Jesus was motivated by heaven. Remember Hebrews 12 too, early in the chapter, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus knew what was promised. And we do too. We should sacrifice fleeting sinful pleasures in this life now for the greater glory and pleasure and joy that we will experience in heaven. That's just if you were uncomfortable with this whole idea that we're going to be partying in heaven and you're going to enjoy it. But now, we've we got to understand that to get from one mountain to the other mountain, we'll have to get there by a hill. Not completely in the text, but to move from Zion, I'm sorry, from Sinai to Zion, we have to go by the way of the hill of Calvary. Jesus sprinkled blood in verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Christ's sacrifice on the hill of Calvary, provides us entrance to Mount Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem. To go from the laws and the imperfections of the old covenant to the grace of God that wins us salvation, we must go through the cross. That is how salvation is achieved. You cannot go from Sinai to Zion simply by deciding you want to or by keeping a new law. No, it's accepting the gospel and the way of salvation through Christ, keeping the law in your place, dying for your sin. So the contrast with Abel's blood, remember Cain and Abel? Abel's the first person to be murdered. Here's how this works, this contrast. Both, both Abel and Christ were killed by their brothers, but Abel's blood 
cried out for vengeance, while Christ's blood cried out for salvation. Abel's death showed the need for satisfaction to meet the wrath that comes because of sin. Christ's death offers that satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. And finally, Abel was commended for his acceptable sacrifice. Jesus was the acceptable sacrifice in God's sight for us. Now, since the book of Hebrews might have been a sermon initially, it certainly reads like a longer sermon, and every sermon maybe has to have a section that addresses people who are dozing off, maybe have their fingers in their ears metaphor. That doesn't happen here. I'm just saying. Or maybe there's just people that are a step or two behind. They don't quite get, they don't grasp what's being communicated. Well, the last five verses of this section, to me, they feel like the author's just grabbing their shoulders and pressing home how important this is. And we see that we should be grateful from being included in the kingdom. Verses 25 through 29. Let's read those verses again. And imagine shaking your shoulders. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We live in a world that is and has always been unstable, unpredictable. The economy is unstable. Jobs are unstable. You have no guarantees that your health will hold up. People, even family, are unpredictable, hurtful, undependable. Now you may feel stable and safe because you have calm and order in your world right now. But it wouldn't take much for your world to be rocked. One driver veering across the road could send you to the hospital for years of recovery. One action by a family member could result in their being imprisoned or sued. One bite from a tick could result in Lyme disease. Debilitating symptoms for years. Life is uncertain. It's hard to imagine a kingdom that is unshakable, secure, immovable, steady, and completely safe. But that's what we're promised. 
these verses remind us, give us a picture of the consuming fire of God. That one day, the great day of God's judgment, when it comes, God brings His refining fire. Only the things that are of Him will survive. God's purifying fire will melt away anything that is ungodly. It will all be consumed. Verse 27 says that everything will be shaken. Created things that are not of God will be removed. But those who belong to Christ, who wear the righteous robes of Christ given to us when we come to faith in Him, they'll survive. All of that. And not only will we not be destroyed by the fire, we will be refined, purified, perfected, it says. Has anybody been watching the TV series AD? The Bible continues on Sunday nights. If you haven't heard of it, it's the stories from the book of Acts with lots of extra political plot lines and a lot of speculation thrown in. I didn't think I'd like it, but I've been watching it. I, I actually enjoy it. It makes me think and, and wonder. Um, is that really how that happened? All right. Last week's episode showed the Apostle Paul, who is consistently called Saul, imprisoned by the Jewish authorities soon after he first converted to Christianity. And Caiaphas, the high priest, over Jesus' trial, is still a very major figure. And he comes to talk Saul out of this new direction. Caiaphas and Saul are standing, kind of overlooking the temple and and the activities in the temple. And the, the high priest says, Come back, Saul. Come back to the temple. Here in the center of the universe, how can you leave? This is your faith here right here. And Saul replies, it does feel like home, but it isn't. And then in a later scene, Saul clarifies things to Caiaphas. He says, Jesus is our Messiah. He rose from the dead, and I have been born again in his name. I have repented, and he has forgiven me, and my sins are forever washed away. So it seems to me that there's no need for your endless search for ritual purity, nor your mikvahs, nor any of your temple customs. No need for the temple and no need for you. To which Caiaphas slaps him across the face and yells at him, threatens him. It's a great scene. And that's the tension that Hebrews has been describing. It must have been so tempting for those early Jewish converts to want to go back to the familiarity of the temple and the law. What the Jewish mind and heart had been conditioned to think was key to their access to God. But throughout Hebrews, we see over and over that the old ways, the temple, the law, the sacrifices are limited and cannot bring true forgiveness or salvation. Only faith in Christ can do that, and that's what all of those things point to anyways. Now, we don't exactly fit 
I don't think, the, orig- the profile of the original audience of this book. We're not converted Jews who have recently come, but are longing to go back to the safe, comfortable confines of Israel, Judea- Old Testament Judaism. But aren't we always tempted to give up the faith for something easier, more tangible, Aren't we susceptible to making Christianity all about keeping rules, following moralistic structures at the expense of putting our faith in Christ who has kept all the laws in our place? We are. That's the default of the human heart. I need to earn it. I need to do it. I need the law. I need direction. We need to stop trying to earn our salvation and turning Christianity into a religion of works and rules. We are saved by grace through faith. And once saved, we are the just who live by faith. Yes, we do works. We we obey. But we do them in faith and by Christ living through us. John Piper likes to say, life is short, hell is real, eternity is long. Those of you who have been in this church for any length of time have heard us present two choices to you. Follow Christ and have all the blessings of God poured out on you. Forgiveness, adoption as his son or daughter, abundant life on earth, an amazing life for eternity. Or reject Christ. And you might have a really fun life, but your eternity will be separation from God. And the confusing thing is that I think people think there is a third road in between accepting Christ or rejecting Him, and that's agreeing with Him, but... I'm going to earn it. I'm going to do it. Earn my salvation by doing enough good things. And I think what the author of Hebrews is saying is that that has the same destination as rejecting Christ. Because essentially that's what it is. It's rejecting that Christ has earned it for you. And so very starkly, again, Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion. The old covenant of the law versus the new covenant of Christ's redemption. Darkness and fear under law versus a celebration of the redeemed in grace. Moses as the scared mediator versus Jesus as the confident, true mediator. At Sinai, the unworthy are warned to stay away. At Zion, the unworthy are made perfect to enter. At Sinai, you die if you get too close. At Zion, Jesus died in your place to get you in. And with that truth, we're 
reminded, worship God with reverence and awe. Overflow with gratitude. And rejoice greatly because we are inheriting an unshakable kingdom. Something that every earthly king has dreamed of ruling over, but none has ever acquired because it doesn't exist here on earth. Heaven is the only perfect place, and it's all ours because of Jesus. I'll give you a moment to thank the Lord for these truths. And I'll close this in prayer.